Hey, Paul. Good morning, Louie. How are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How you doing? I'm all right. Ready to go back in time a little bit? <laughs> I guess so. Okay. Louis Rodriguez was with the 101st Airborne in Vietnam. At the beginning of the Tet Offensive in late January 68, Louis and other soldiers with the 101st landed on the roof of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon as Viet Cong invaders launched a surprise attack on the embassy. Louis's tour in Vietnam included countless search and destroy missions. During one, he suffered severe wounds that nearly took his life and left him with limited vision in one eye. He witnessed the atrocities of war and lives with images that still haunt. For decades after coming home, he said little about his wartime experience. But in more recent years, he has found a measure of peace in talking with other vets, especially those involved in the disabled American veterans. Please be forewarned that Louis's descriptions of some of his combat experience is quite graphic, but then war is seldom otherwise. One thing he has never lost is his sense of humor. You graduated high school in, in 1966, and back right. then, as best you could recollect, how did you see your future? As back then, my future was bleak. And by that, I mean, I, I lived in a, a, a very strict household with my father, you know, and, and I'm not I'm not uh, dissing him or anything because he was a great man and I loved him and and to me he's my hero, but uh, he was very strict with us, and and I was so you know a lot of people told me that I never had a childhood because I was always in charge or I was or I was always given responsibility for my other siblings and everything to do things. I w- it was very strict. The 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 curfews we didn't have. I mean, we couldn't go out, and if we went out to a party or or we had to be home by ten, and this one we, and this is when we were old enough, like teenagers, seventeen and eighteen. So this not like we were little kids. Anyway, uh, I I hated school, I hated going to school, and I always thought, in my mind, I always thought about how can I run away from home? How can I do this? How can I do that? But my father's, because my we were brought up by a single parent, my father. So my father always wanted us to graduate from high school. He said, you guys are not going to quit, but I'm not going to, you guys are going to, even if you're an old man, if you, even if you're in your 20s, you're still going to go to school. So don't even think about flunking or getting out of this. So I knew, I knew what he was, and I knew he was very strict, and he was very disciplinary. So... I said, well, I'm going to graduate. That's what he wants. I want to graduate. So I, I graduated. And I barely graduated. I'm, I'm telling you, I wasn't very, I didn't excel in hardly anything, but I did a lot of things, you know, play ball, basketball, you know, football uh, or, or whatever, you know. But I never excelled in anything, and I didn't want to go to college. So in January of 1966, when I was a senior there and I was going to graduate in June, uh, me and my buddy start talking, one of my close buddies. So we, we talked about the military and we joined the military together as in the buddy system. So you enlisted. So that, 
I enlisted. I didn't want to be drafted. So because I wanted to go, I wanted to go to where I want to go. And one of the things that I want to do was I want to jump out of airplanes, go airborne, and I want to go to Vietnam. So that's what I did. I, I graduated in the first week in June. That was back in 1966. My my buddy and I already had gone and taken the tests and everything, and and we were in. I left that morning, and I didn't even tell my father or anybody in my household except my brother. I told my brother, you know, uh, when you – because my father was, was, like I said, it was very strict, and there's no way he was going to allow me to go to the military. Well, he was a vet too, was he not? Yeah, he was a vet. Why yeah. would why would he have not wanted you to go in the military? Was that because of Vietnam? Yeah, right, because of Vietnam. And a lot of people were getting killed and, and all the protests and everything. And so I, I I left home. It was like running away from home, but running, going into the military, which I knew that it was, you know, that I had a home there because it was, I knew they also were strict, the structure and everything. And I didn't mind that because I was like that anyway. So given what you knew, what was going on in Vietnam at that time as a high school graduate, you knew the risks of going there. Why did right. you, you want to do that? I want to do that because I, in, in, as like I said, growing up strict and 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 uh, and giving uh, responsibility early and everything. I I my favorite show was Combat, and and it was because it was Vic Morrow and another guy there in Combat. Rick and, Jason. And, Rick Jason was the other guy. Right there, that's him. And and one of the things that intrigued me, and and you can say, well, you're crazy or whatever. One of the things that intrigued me is I said, look, there's 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 two groups of people. You got the Americans here, you know, well equipped, dressed, and with a weapon, and then you got the bad guys in the other side. And each one is equal as far as having uniform and having a weapon and everything. And you're out there, you're put out there, and you're fighting shooting at each other in my mind what i was thinking was what you're doing is finding out who was well who was better trained who better because if they put you and i in a force and they give us a weapon and 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 you got to fight to the death you know may, may the best man win so was this like and, a, a personal test for you or did you right have a... it was it was a, a, a personal thing for me that that I knew that if I because I I listen and I pay attention that if I was well trained and 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 I knew what to do I knew that nobody can beat me did so you... when I when I went to Vietnam that was my attitude and and uh, you probably uh, seen this too. When I was wounded and I was sent to Japan, I was pissed off because they were going to send me back to the United States. Yeah, you want to go, wanna back, go back, back? Yeah, come right. To I want to go back to Vietnam because those guys almost killed me, and I was going to go back and 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 have revenge. You know, at that time I didn't think about the word revenge, but that's exactly what it was. I want to go back and say, hey. You try to kill me, UMFer. I'll, I'll show you. You know that that type of attitude. Well, when you, you look know. at fifty years down the road, when you look back on that, do you question your own decision making? No, because I don't regret going to Vietnam. I don't regret enlisting. You know, I chose infantry, which is you know, there's no infantry in civilian life. It's infantry is killing. 
but I, that was my choice, and and you, I didn't mind that. You were not then driven by any political ideology or the need to stop the spread of communism, which I know motivated a lot of people and what's what our government was saying to us back at the time. Right. This was, no, initi- this was more of a initi- personal challenge for you. Right. It was a personal challenge when I, when I did all this, you know, prior to enlisting and, and during the enlisting. But once I was in and they started uh, indoctrinating us or, or for lack of a better word, brainwashing us and everything, communists, we can't let communists take over this, blah, blah, blah. Then then I, I fit I fit it in. I fit I was like the the piece of puzzle that fit it in. I said, Oh wait, that's great. Hell no, we're not gonna let those bastards take over and this and that. And that was my attitude after I enlisted while I was in the military in the States. But then I I, I went to Vietnam and that changed again. You wanted to jump out of airplanes. Oh, yes. You made mention of whether or not some people may think you're crazy for your other decisions. Some people may think you're crazy for jumping out of airplanes, right? Oh yeah. A lot of my buddies <laughs> thought. A lot of my buddies would say, "Man, are you crazy?" You know. Why'd you want to do that, Louis? Why? Because again, going back, like like you just said, it was a challenge, and it was it was risky. It was it was a challenge. It was a risk. That if I didn't pay attention, if I didn't do what I was told, I'm going to die. Let me take a sidestep here and ask, because I've never jumped out of an airplane and, and never will. <laughs> what, what was it like on your first jump? It was exhilarating for me. And like I said, a lot of my buddies call me crazy. I like to jump out of airplanes, and I also like to be the first one out of the airplane. So the first guy always goes up to the door and the door is open and all that, all that air coming in. And the first guy is uh, standing next to the door with the hands outside the body of the airplane, getting ready to jump. Once that first guy jumps, everybody jumps. It's like dominoes. So you You know what I'm saying? You wanted to be the lead. I, I, I wanted to be the lead, but not because I want to be the lead. It's because I love seeing uh, all the clouds and seeing the the outside you know and and i always volunteered to be the first one do you remember what you said the first time you jumped out of a plane did you yell like geronimo or something like yep, that? yep that's exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what i said geronimo <laughs> <laughs> maybe not an original line but it's functional i, it I tell you i tell you that i was crazy there was <laughs> You know, because you see all these things on TV and Geronimo and that. I said, hey, this is going to be my initial jump. This is my first jump. So here he goes. Geronimo! (laughs) So time passes. You you, you finish your airborne training and you leave for Vietnam in September of 67. And how did you, when when you're heading toward Vietnam, how are you picturing the days ahead? Do you have a notion of what you may be facing? Yeah, there was a lot of scenarios going through my mind. We flew out of uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, Washington State. What, what was uh, going through my mind was that I hope nobody mortars us or shoot us down when we're landing. 
were you under <laughs> because, were, were you under live fire when you were on approach? No, no, we were not under live fire, but there has been airplanes because they told us that that we would be that we might be under live fire. You're with your company with 101st Airborne, and what is your mission? Are you search and destroy? Yes. Well, we, we, like I said, we flew to Vietnam and uh, and Tansinu, you know, they said, all oh, the volunteers over here, all the draftees, and, and there would be representatives from, from, all, from all the units in Vietnam. So, like, there were... The 196 Light Infantry, if you've got orders for the 196 Light Infantry over here, if you got orders for the, this uh, other unit over here, the 101st Airborne over here, <laughs> and, and, and there was only about two or three of us, <laughs> everybody else, there was a bunch of people <laughs> going to that. I said, damn, there's not hardly any people going to the 101st Airborne. I said, yeah, because you're going to be out in the bush all the time. So we were there in the camp, the base camp, which was in July in Fenrang, and we had that orientation. Now, from there, they took us on a Huey chopper, a helicopter, to the different, they took the different people to the different companies. And then I went to Company B, 2nd 504, 2nd dudes. That company, Company B, gave itself a variety of nicknames. You were you called yourselves the Nomads for a while because you were well, all no, over the see, place. The nomads because we were always we were always hunting the 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 enemy, and we were our mission was always about ninety nine percent of the time was S and D, search and destroy, search and destroy, and uh, and we were called Nomads. We were always uh, also we were called the Widowmakers for obvious reasons. And we were also called the dealers. And we had our own calling cards. The dealers, you have just been dealt by a branch of the 101st Airborne, the the Widowmakers, the dealers, Widowmakers or whatever. We would go out for about 45 to 60 days at a time. Out, I mean, and we would go at a click at a time and a click is about a thousand meters, you know, and at dusk, Dig in and wake up early in the morning and keep on humping. Digging in, <laughs> digging in means you you uh, you dug yourselves little trenches that you could sleep in. Right, digging in, digging in, right, and digging in. We say, okay, dig in, and what we did is dig trenches, and the trenches should be uh, deep enough that your body would be below uh, the earth. So, you know, 10 inches, 12 inches, and, and however long you were, if you were six foot, if you were five, five, or whatever. So each stop you're making every day, you're digging yourself another trench? Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's why we didn't dig foxholes, because foxhole is more permanent when you're in a, when you're in a camp and, and, you're, and you're living there. You got foxholes and you got this. But ours were temporary because we were only there for the night. Louis, can you describe what a typical day when you're out in the bush would be like? A search and destroy mission. We would have a, a powwow, the, with the officers have a powwow and everything, and then your platoon leader, which is a lieutenant, would come out and explain to us, "Okay, we're going to go this way, so many clicks," and we would start out like 
three in the morning, right after we get up, and we would just be humping. And on the way, we would find different types of terrain, which would be like elephant grass. Uh, elephant uh, grass. We would elephant grass. We call it elephant grass because it was tall. It was about six or seven foot tall. The grass. And uh, we would have uh, mountains, hills, creeks. I mean, you encounter all kind of animals, and they would tell you, leave them alone. If you leave them alone, they won't bother you. Elephants, all kind of apes. I even saw a tiger. So a, a typical day, you would go, and if you didn't find, if you were not engaged, it was just, you know, going to that next to the next point, that point that we were supposed to go. If along the way we would find enemy or whatever, they would engage us or we would engage them, then we would have a firefight. Yeah, usually you know? usually pretty intense for a few Pretty minutes. intense, yeah. right. Pretty uh, intense. How often did that happen on your patrols? I, I think it would happen three or four times a, a month. Sometimes you would go one week and you, you didn't see, you know, you, didn't, you, you were not engaged or you didn't engage anybody. When we would go out, like I said, we would go out for 35, 45 days at a time. And that's without any hot meal and without any bathing or anything. You know, you bathe. If you see a creek or, or water, then, you know, you, you splash water on yourself. So that's how it was. And and a lot of times they would tell you, you know, we need some intel. And by that, they meant that they would like to get uh, prisoners, like they would like to get a, a, a high-ranking prisoner, an officer, or a low-ranking prisoner, so whatever. Sometimes we had enough we had enough intel of the area that we didn't need prisoners. So they would tell us, you know, okay, search and destroy, but no prisoners. Mm-hmm. So, you know, no prisoners meant exactly that. You know, you can't say that to the Viet Cong. You can't say that to the NBA, especially the Viet Cong, because a lot of times when we would engage them and we and we were overpowering them, they would try to surrender. They would come up with, with, with their weapons up in the air and they had a rag, a white rag and everything. But our orders were no prisoners. Well, so you, if I, all right, what did you think about that? Well, I that's where it, that hurted me a lot. Because they were, they were, uh, they're giving up. They were giving up, man. And they're not firing at us. They're not doing anything. And, and, and we had to kill them. That's, that, <laughs> that torments. Yeah. That's, that bothered me a lot. Well, when so, you're, you, when you're a soldier there, you don't, question the command but, right right but, i mean, I mean I, but i'm it, a soldier i i did what i was told you know and i witnessed a lot of shit i, I witnessed point blank shooting at at prisoners if they didn't want to talk i witnessed i witnessed uh americans throwing the the prisoners out of a helicopter because they didn't want to talk you know i i i witnessed uh Old men getting a headbutt in the head with the weapon because, you know, they, they didn't act right 
whatever the the interpreter because we had interpreters with us whatever the interpreters were telling them and and sometimes those interpreters were very very ruthless with their own people well you don't have stripes on your shoulders so you can't raise a beef but did you and your fellow soldiers sometimes talk about the ridiculousness of, of oh that? yeah oh yeah and 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 always i guess <clears throat> Always in every company, in every platoon, in every everywhere, you have different people, you know, where you different people, I call them cliques, different cliques. You got the cliques, the people that they like to to play, you know, to gamble, the people that like to smoke pot and you like and then there's another clique of people. And that's where I came in because I was brought up very religious and, and I didn't smoke pot. I didn't smoke you know, a lot of a lot of people think that Vietnam veterans were potheads. Well, I disagree with that because I, I I had access to that and and I didn't I didn't do it because I was smart enough not to do it. One is because of what originally what I had told you that I want to be that it was a personal thing with me. I want to be the best, and if I want to if I want to if I was engaged in a firefight, I want to be a hundred percent, not not uh, hung over with with one beer or, or with pot or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yes, I do. I, I, I wanted my body to be a hundred percent and everything. So I never did. So in those little clicks that we had, you know, three or four guys and everything together, we would talk about that. But then you had the other clicks that would say, Hey, did you see that motherfucker? You see that guy? We had his hands up and look, I, I cut his hands right off with, you know, and look, I hit him. I blew his head off. You know, people that talk that way, talk crazy, talk. They were to me, they were like maniacs. And then there was us. I said, man, I I hate that when when they, I hate to go out when there's a no prisoner uh, order because there's always going to be people trying to give up, and then and then you kill them. When you witness something like that, are you are you able, are you courageous enough to say something to the guy who says, I just cut this fellow's hands off? No, no. At, at that time, you're right. You know, maybe we should. But like I said, there was clicks and, 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 and we stayed with our clicks. Occasionally, yeah, you go by, you know, they say, hey, right. I say, hey, man, don't be talking about that shit. That's it. Oh, look, look, look at that. Look at that guy. Look at look, look. At first, when I came in, the, you know, when you first come in, the, you're a Sherry, you know, right. for obvious reasons. So they call you Sherry. Look at that Sherry. Look at that green guy. Look at that. Ah, you wouldn't be talking that way after four or five months in here. You know, stuff like that. So it's not like nothing, n- not like a, 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 a conversation that two grown-ups would have. Hey, man, you shouldn't do that. It's just things that we would say to each other you know and but that, we had our we had we each when one of us had each other's back so yeah but it still haunts you to this day yeah to this day it haunts me and 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 i, I don't know if you i told you about my first kill but that that haunts me too my first kill and the way the attitude changed from being a uh go go u.s 
pro-American, you know, fighting communists and all that to to self-survival. By that, I mean, I want to get the F out of there by by all means. I want to go back to my wife. I want to go back to my to my father. I want to go back to my brothers. I want to go back to my family. So I wasn't careless in that way, you know. I, I always, you know, they always told us at the beginning, you know, clean your weapon because that weapon's going to save you. You know, and after each, some firefights, I always clean my weapon. Mm-hmm. And, and and there were some people that would comment on it. Oh, he's always cleaning his weapon. And other people, they don't. They just wipe it off clean and that's it. And then in the next firefight, damn, their weapon gets jammed. Yeah. So I was well, I was one of the guys that would follow instructions and and what we call in the military, I was trying to be strapped. You know, and when I was in the U.S., in, in the States, I was tracked. But in, in Vietnam, you couldn't be that strapped. But but I always followed. I cleaned my weapon after every firefight. I make sure I had enough ammo. And if I only had, you know, two or three magazines, I, I requested more. And so that's how I was. It was survival. I, I, I wanted, I didn't want to be careless where I was going to get hit and, and get killed which I almost did, but I want to be alert enough and everything in every firefight to defend myself. January 30th, 1968, the Tet Offensive starts, and it came as a big surprise. Your, right. your unit is in uh, uh, Benoit, I guess? and Yeah. The Viet Cong managed to penetrate the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. Who would have imagined that at that time? Your unit is called up, and what did you have to do? Well, in the in the Tet Offense, right? Uh, that's where the whole whole South Vietnam security was breached in every aspect. It was breached, and it was breached in Saigon. And Saigon was the supposedly the most secure place. That's like somebody going over to the White House and invading the White House. The North Vietnamese and the and the Viet Cong they they breached the the security. They took over the U.S. Embassy and, and they did what they did. They killed or, or the people ran out. So they call us, the 101st Airborne, to go over to Saigon. And we were, in a way, we were happy because we've been in the jungle. We've been living in the jungle, hardly any hot meals or anything. Yeah, man, we're going to Saigon. Oh, man, maybe we can go to a, to a restaurant over there. Maybe we can have some cold beer or whatever. Shit, we went there and we were started fighting. And, and securing the place. When you're at the embassy, you're doing a floor-by-floor walkthrough right. to make sure everything is secure. Right, it, on, top, on top of the embassy. That must have been a strange feeling. I mean, as you said, like, this is the White House. Um, right. A strange feeling in that the enemy is there, and you gotta, you, you're doing a, a floor-by-floor search. A floor-by-floor search while we landed in the roof. We, we're going down. And like I said, yeah, it's a, it's a big building, and and you're doing a floor by floor search, and and everything is, you know, there's blood everywhere, there's some bodies here and there, and paperwork strung all over, you know, from all the the, the weapons, for, you know, firing everybody firing. So, uh, yeah, floor by floor. So so if we started at the at the roof, and we went all the way down, and when we came out the doors. It was secure. Did you guys say to each other at the time, how in the world can this happen? 
No, I didn't say that. Maybe other people did. But my thing at that time was, like I said, taking care of myself and making sure I did everything right and, and looking after and, 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 and doing everything right. But you're right. I said, how, you know, afterwards you, you ponder and you say, how, you know, how the hell did the Viet Cong get up all the way up here through the jungle? You know, what, what are the Americans doing? Are they sleeping? Those people that were supposed to be in, in, in security. What happened that they they went all the way to to the U.S. Embassy? Everyone began to wonder at that point yeah, what's you, going you, on. I, you know, at that time, my thoughts are against the U.S., you know, against what the hell they're doing. These people are over here. They think they're in the States. You know, they go see a movie every day. They go to a restaurant. They go see a whore. They go to a bar. You know, it's like everyday living, like 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 living in Chicago. They don't know there are uh, a few miles down the perimeter. There's a war going on and, and, and they're so lax because if the U.S. or whoever was in charge of, of, of security in Saigon, if they were alert, if they were doing their job the way they were supposed to be doing it, that wouldn't happen. But it did happen. Yes, it did. So let's move yeah. ahead. Move ahead three months into okay. April, April of 68. You're in the Oshaw Valley. Right. You're on patrol and you're on point. Okay. You were talking about the day that I got hit? Yes. Okay. We had taken over the Asha Valley. We lost a lot of people, a lot of equipment. After secured the following day, we were going to go out. They had intel that there were some Viet NVA, North Vietnamese Army, down X amount of clicks or whatever. And we were going to go on patrol. And when I say we was 101st Infantry, so there was other people going on patrol. They had two tanks, and they had about three or four APCs, Army personnel carriers. We were the infantry, and we were securing the flanks, left and right of, of the tanks, left and right of the APCs. I was given the job of point men. And point men, it's, it's uh, you know... Appointment, you could you could be lucky and have a and be appointment because they'll let you go. A lot of times in a firefight, you're you know you're just one guy, so they don't engage you because they don't want to give themselves away. So you go by and then they engage the the rest of the company. And sometimes you're unlucky because you'll get hit. And in this case, the the patrol wasn't just foot soldiers; it was mechanized it was uh tanks and it was uh apcs in the past when we would go humping we were always quiet but when you have a tank and apcs there's no there's no silence you know so you got the the tanks rumbling blah, 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 and we're going and when we were going there was high high grounds on each side of us so we were we would be like sitting ducks i said man this is perfect for an ambush and we were going around a bend. I I stopped everybody because I heard I saw some rustling of the bushes and, and movement. And as soon as I did that, a one-two punch. They shot RPG rockets to the tank. I don't know if you you've seen a tank where you have the turret and you have the the company, the tank commander, which is in charge of the 50 caliber. He's 
there and then the rest of the people are inside the tank well the uh, they shot that rpg one of the rpg right through the opening of the turret that it it cut the the commander in half so the upper torso flew up in the air and as soon as they shot that one they shot another one when you're going when you when you hear the sound and 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 you're going down to the ground because whenever you get engaged, you hit the ground. And and they shot those two RPGs like one second after another. The other one hit me, hit me on my wrist and hit me on my eye. When it hit me, it uh, spun me around. I dropped my helmet and I and, and my weapon. They all came off because I was hit in the eye. I was like blind, I you know. I cover my eyes and I felt the blood and and the tears or whatever and I and I'm saying out loud and now when this happened a full blown firefight engage and I obviously they're firing over my head because I'm in front I'm in between the two the bad guys and us and I'm and I'm like a like a chicken with his head cut off I, where's my weapon where's my I need my weapon because I wanted my weapon, because that was my defense. So the, my buddies and everything say, Rod, they used to call me Rod. Rod, get the F down, get down, get down. You're going to get killed. So I, I got down and I'm crawling. I'm crawling to find, to get my weapon. But my weapon was further away from me, which is closer to the enemy. So I'm low crawling to trying to get my weapon. So one of my buddies low crawl up to me, grabbed me by my boot by my foot and dragged me back he said f your weapon f your weapon come back come back here so he dragged me all the way to the rear and and that's where the medics took care of me and then from there the firefight continued we got control of the firefight we also call the medevac that's the huey helicopters with a red cross and uh they called two medevacs they would evacuate the wounded first the people who were dead in in fubar they, they were the last ones to leave. Mm-hmm. So we got in the medevac. They put me in the medevac along with other wounded people, uh, GIs. And we were going all the way. We go up to fly out so we could get up out of the tree line. So we're going up and they're firing at us. And and we're hollering at the the pilot, higher, higher, higher. Get the F out of here. Get the F higher, higher. And, and he's going up, up, up. And you can see... When they were firing at us, you could see the bullets. You could actually see the bullets going up, and, and they they go up to their maximum potential they have, and they, they drop, drop down. So we went up. And then the, the, the second uh, medevac that was right behind us, that they got up, they went, they started to go up too, and they got hit. They got hit by a RPG or something, and they blew the, the medevac out of the sky. So oh. those people, they all they all perish. And you the saw pilot, that. You saw yeah, that happen. I, I saw Medevac, which is the Huey helicopter, blow up, blow up in the air. Mm-hmm. And we saw that, and we would we would be yelling at at our pilot, "Get the F up, 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 up!" Because the higher up you go, the the less maximum and effect of the weapon, whatever they're shooting at us. Yeah. Well. Self-preservation 
is a driving motivation and you you've got your hand i presume your eyes patched probably by then and and you're right. you're wondering what your situation is going to be but you, right you're you're going to now leave vietnam and you're off to japan for treatment for your wounds right. right you lost sight you were only able to see what just light images with your left eye well, right after I lost my, uh, I was hit. I, I didn't see anything because my eyes was patched up, so I only could see out of one eye. Hmm. While they treated, and you know, I had shrapnel in my eye around that area, your eye area. Lucky, the doctor said that it it didn't go all the way to the brain. But the, I was flown in from from that firefight. We were flown into a hospital ship, the USS Sanctuary. And there was a Navy hospital ship and the Navy doctors and, and the Navy people, they took care of, they took care of us. And from there, we, we navigated to Saigon and then in Saigon, I was in Saigon for three or four days until they flew us from Saigon to Japan. I had a lot of, a lot of shrapnel, a lot of metal inside me in Japan. They did a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, I guess, operation or whatever, taking out metals and everything and uh, sewing up my eye and everything. And they said, yeah, you need a, a cornea transplant. But they, they didn't do it there because my eye had to heal. So the corneal transplant waits until you get back stateside and then you have to the stateside, right. Um, and now in the years that have passed since then, you you have managed to recover some sight. But tell me, what what's sight like through your left eye today? It's it's uh it's a lot better and it's it's good. I I mean I, I I've been doing this with one eye and 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 the more vision I get out of my left eye, the better it is. But I, I'm used to it already. In many respects, you're a lucky man in that regard. Oh yeah, I've been a lucky guy. Yeah, I've been a lucky guy throughout my life, and and it's funny because uh, you know how they say the cats have nine lives. And, and, and one day, as a matter of fact, I, I got the piece of paper somewhere, but I wrote down the many times that my life came close. <laughs> and I said, I, I'm beating the cats. <laughs> <laughs> when you came home to O'Hare, you had gone through the surgery and you were wounded. Um, right. And you did you know what you were coming back into the protests? Did you no, know? I, did, I, I, knew, you, I knew. Yes, I knew about the protests and, and, you know, the university, the shootings with the National Guard and all that. And I, I knew about all that. But I thought that was gone to a certain extent. And since I was coming to Chicago to O'Hare, there's there's no, you know, nothing like that going on around here. You know, at that time, when you were airborne, you were elite. You know, the other soldiers would look at you. Oh, man, look at that guy. He's a special guy because we would dress different. By different, I mean not the different clothes. Our, our khakis, we blouse our boots. Our boots would be spit chines. We were the only units, the airborne, to dress out in the public with boots on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have my, my boots, blouse and everything. I have my uniform. I'm looking sharp. I'm starish. I got a crease on my pants and everything looks sharp. And I'm, and I'm proud too, cause I'm, I'm coming back to a hair. And that's where that, that, uh, older guy 
came to me and he, he said, hey, I'm proud of you. He said, welcome home. He shook my hand. He said a lot of, a lot of nice things. And he said, he said, son, if I were you, I wouldn't go out looking like that. I said, looking like what? He said, I'm looking sharp. He said, looking like what? He said, I said, the, the people out there don't take kindly to, to soldiers. I was devastated. So I said, damn. So I said, damn, if I go out there, I might, I might get killed. I might get my ass whipped. And I'm in the States. So I, I went to the washroom and I, and I changed over to my CVs. And that's how I got out, you know. So, but anyway, I, I, I had my CVs on and I put everything in my duffel bag and, and went out. But that, that hurt me a lot, too. As a consequence of that reception when you came home, you didn't talk much about your military service for a long time. No, I, I, I didn't talk to hardly anybody because, you you know, if you go out with your with your buddies and you're, and you're having a drink, you would hear other people you know, about complaining about us, that some of us were, were potheads and, 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 and we lost the war, you know, instead of blaming the, 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 the officers and everything, they, you know, they were just talking in general and, and that hurting me, you know, and, and this and that, and I, I didn't want. What happened that turned that around? What happened was because when I got out of the service, ETS, I got out of service in 69, in June of 69, because I was wounded in combat. You know, I was given uh, the CIB, the Combat Infantry Badge, and I was given the Purple Heart. With that, I got uh, a disability, a claim. So I got out with a 20% disability. That meant that they were they were giving me a monthly check. There was nothing for the Vietnam veterans uh, as far as counseling or anything, or there was no such thing as at that time as PTSD. It, it was shell shock, and we hardly talk about it. So as as I started educating myself and asking questions about the different different organizations around, you know, you you find out that there was the VFW. The VFW didn't want didn't like uh, Vietnam veterans because Vietnam was not a war, it was a conflict. You had the DAV, the Disabled American Veterans, you, you you know, you had different organizations. So I started inquiring and enlisting in those organizations. And they say, hey man, uh and a lot of people start talking about the claim, how some of them were 30, 40, 50 percent how much percent you got a purple heart yeah you got i got a purple heart what's your percentage 20 percent. what yeah you got a purple heart you were infantry you were uh, in the jungle and you got 20 percent. no that's not right and so that opened my eyes to what what was going on with vietnam veterans and there was a good uh counselor at the at the clinic the va clinic over here in crown point and we we started talking. He said, "No, man, you're 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 getting screwed. You are getting screwed." They were the ones who instructed me and told me and said, "Here, these are the forms. Here, you write down what you did, what happened to you, what this and that." Because at that time, it, and that cost me um, my marriage. At that time, I thought I was it by by saying that I was it. I thought I was 
oh, I'm a, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I'm a, I'm a 101st Airborne. I'm, uh, I'm King Kong. I can beat the world. What I say is it. I'm right, and you're wrong. And, and that's how it was with my wife and everything. And, and, and I was very strict and everything. And so I said, damn. So I, they say, hey, man, you, you, got, you got issues. You, you got PTSD. I said, what's, what's PTSD? So they said, they said that's post-traumatic. I said, you, you shouldn't be there. You should, that shouldn't be happening to you. Did you. Were you like that before you went to Vietnam? I said, hell no. He said, well, you got PTSD. So I started talking to a lot of people, and the people were educating me and different things. So I started uh, dealing with, with a service officer, and, and, and I went from 20 to 40 to 60, and now I'm paid at 100% uh, disability. How long did it take you to fight, win that fight? To win that fight, it was like from uh, 2011, 2012. Okay. And it, and, and it took me about three to four years to get my 100%. Because every time they would find something wrong. Oh, we don't have evidence of this. We don't have evidence of that. Oh, what happened here? What? So they would return it back to you, back to me. So then I would have to resubmit it or appeal my my decision so that's what i did and eventually they 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 got me at 80 percent, but i'm paid at a hundred percent unemployable with tp total and permanent louis when you wrap all this up your service what has happened your review of your own situation what you lost there what you lost in your in the years following the war when you kind of consider everything that happened, do you do you second guess yourself? Do you wonder if that was the right decision to have gone to Nam? In my case, yes. In my case, yes, it was the right decision to go to uh, the military. In my case, because of the way I was, my attitude, the way I I, I did things and everything, it was it was a good experience to go to Vietnam. Had I not gone to the service, I don't know what I would have been. I, I mean, I don't know what I would have been, but I, I, all I had was a high school education, and I didn't want to be home because I don't want to be lived by the rules of my father being already graduated from high school and being a, a man, you know. At the time, you, you didn't understand, I'm sure, why there were protests and why they were aimed at the rank and file, the grunts who came back. Do you have a, a grasp on that today, why that sort of thing happened? Well— after I got there, all this politics and everything, and then how I how I seen how the military, the high anarchy, they they for lack of a better word, I, they play with us. We would take a, a hill like Hamburger Hill, and we we would lose a lot of people doing that and everything. Then they would pull us out. When they pull us out, the NBA and the Gooks would go right back in, and then somebody else we had the the job to clear that again. It's it's it's, less, it's like playing a freaking game, you know, the politician I'm talking about, you know, they put a dot here. Okay. Here's the, here's the NBA here. Let's go, let's go send the 101st airborne over there. Okay. That did it over there. Okay. Now the, the, the 101st is did their job there. Let's go send them over here. Oops. It flare up again where the 101st just left. Ah, let's go send this other unit over there. That's the way we looked at it, but they, they got a big board and that's how they, they play with us. But I, I, I don't regret going. I don't regret. What I regret doing is 
based on some of the stuff that I got from the military that I took it over to the civilian life and it cost me my two marriages and, and it almost cost me a third marriage. You know, that's what I regret. Are, are you still getting treatment for PTSD? Uh, yes, I'm still am. Is it helping? It has helped. It has helped. You know, there's been a lot of confrontations. When I say confrontations, it's between me and, and the counselors and whatever. Because, you know, you, you get all these young kids. And when I say these young kids graduate from, from, from college and then they go to being a psychiatrist or being a counselor, they don't know everything. And some of them had the audacity to say, we're going to cure you. And when they use that word cure, we're going to cure you? That's like somebody stabbing me. My decibel would go up and I say, what the F are you saying you're going to cure me? I say, you want to cure me? You know how you can cure me? And they would say, how? If you gave me a, a lobotomy or if I had dementia, that's how you would cure me. Where I would have no knowledge in this head of mine what happened. But as long as I have if I can remember, and I remember stuff from that day because my, my brain, I, I would tell them, and I told Sakrach a lot, I said, my brain is like a CD. It's been recorded over and over and over again, and I will never forget. And as long as I will never forget, I will never be cured from PTSD. I might get better, and I've gotten better because I understand a lot of things, but I would never, never be cured. Let's move to another experience that you had that was, I know, pretty positive. You were on the June 2019 flight, Honor Flight Chicago mission. It was the first one for Vietnam vets. And right. you were on it. Right. Tell me about that experience, what it did for you, how it's impacted your life. I was reluctant. I put in my application because I knew it was going to take a, a few years, and I had those few years to ponder and and think about it, but I said, nah, man, I don't want to go to, because I've been to DC before and I've been, so I don't want to go there. But when my turn finally came and you talked to me and everything, I said, yeah, I'll go. And I wasn't all that excited to go, but uh, the thing that really caught my eye and really impressed me was when we got to Midway, how organized you guys were. And most of you were civilians. You weren't military, but you were so organized. And then we took the flight, and that was that was great. And when we when we got to Washington D.C., the same thing. Man, as soon as I got out of the plane, there was people there. Are you, uh, Mr. Rodriguez? Say yes, I am. I said, Well, I'm your I'm your guardian. I said, Wow, this was it was great. Then coming back on and that floored me. Coming back on the on the plane when they had mail call and they gave me the envelope and I seen all those, my family. I swear to God, I had no idea that that you guys and, and Len Shurinsky and everything had talked to my wife and they had talked about, you know, to my son and to some of my close friends about that and that you guys, that they all wrote letters and everything. That, that floored me. I said, wow, that brought me to tears too. My son lives in St. Louis and it's about four and a half hour drive. And he drove from St. Louis, he drove to Midway so he can receive me 
coming from Washington, D.C. that evening. And everything was done about 10, 1030. And he drove back to St. Louis because he had to go to work the next day. That was nice. That, that was nice. That, yeah, that was that's how nice that was and how dedicated he was. And But he also knew that it, it meant a lot for me. So he also made that sacrifice. And that's what I call a sacrifice. How beneficial was this day for you? It's still in my mind, and I'm, I'm still uh, I'm proud of it. And I made a I, I made a folder of all the stuff and the letters and and everything. And I got a binder with with the Honor Flight Chicago, June fifth, twenty nineteen. It made a big impression in me. Did it give you a little peace? Oh yeah, it gave me peace of mind. And uh, when we got back to O'Hare. I mean, to Midway and uh, the Navy, the regular Navy, active Navy guys were waiting for us and they were our escort. And I had a, a, a young lady and, and she was walking with me and, and she was she was very honored and proud that she was walking with me. So I said, I'm honored and proud that you're walking with me. I'm glad that there's people out there, especially the military, they they honor us and they welcome us back the way you know the way it should have been done a long time ago well welcome home louis my friend welcome home thank you thank you paul thank you for being so open and honest and frank i really appreciate that louis I really well, appreciate I appreciate you talking to me, and whenever you want to talk to me again, just give me a call. Roger that. Take care, okay. Louie. Okay. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast, and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.